0: Well good morning everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Can I just say at the outset, it's um you know being in the church in Wales is a bit of a tough gig sometimes, but there are some very good people. And I just wanted to just say, you know, how valued your prayers are. So I was reading through two Corinthians this week. Um right at the beginning, Paul says, Let me turn to it quickly. This is chapter one, verse well, verse ten. Paul says God delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul was absolutely convinced in the power of prayer that God will move as people pray. So do pray for us in the Church of Wales. Do pray particularly for the Archdeacon. Um, rod green who has responsibility for this area and i really appreciate prayers as well for the um, next vicar of roth park so there's a vacancy there at the moment and it's strategically very important who comes into that post so two, please pray uh, for that appointment what well, should we turn together to 2 corinthians 13 If you've been reading through with Daily Bread, you will have got to uh, 2 Corinthians 13 this morning. Let's read it together. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may do no wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Wish well, we pray as we turn together to God's word. Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge our inability as we stand before you. Lord, it is only by your spirit that your word will be opened and applied to our hearts and bring the change that you desire. And so, Lord, we just pray that as we consider your word now together, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, that you would transform us, make us more like your son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Math uh, invited me to speak, I was delighted to see that he put me down for one Corinthians thirteen. Fantastic, I thought. What can go wrong? Everyone loves one Corinthians thirteen. Paul's great statement about love. And I looked again, and my heart sank. Two Corinthians thirteen. I don't know about you. Have you been reading through it for the last two weeks? But I find it one of the most difficult letters. Probably the most difficult letter in the New Testament. It's full of odd themes. There's a theme of weakness. There's a a theme of boasting. And there seems to be this whole sort of backstory that's going on that you don't really know about. You're trying to sort of piece together, read between the lines, see what is going on and what Paul is responding to. But the more I have read it this week, the more I have come to love this book. Someone once described it like this. They said, it is the most passionate, honest, vulnerable, heartfelt letter in the Bible. As I read through Chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians again, I realize actually it's not unlike its counterpart in 1 Corinthians. It is also all about love. Now we live in a culture that has a fairly sentimental view of love. Uh, I think for me it's summed up in those um, do you know, those Love Is cartoons. Do you remember the Love Is cartoons you used to get in the newspaper? I don't know if you still do. Each one has a little picture of a girl, picture of a boy. It says, Love Is, in the top left-hand corner, dot, 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 and then some twee slogan underneath. It could be some of the ones uh, that I found on the Internet. Love is waking up and finding he's not a dream. <laughs> Love is a song in your heart. Love is a kind of heaven only better. Now, what would Paul write? If he was going to draw one of those cartoons, what would he put as the slogan underneath? Well, I think from this chapter, we know at least three things that he would say. Number one, love is talking straight about sin. Number two, love is calling for honest self-examination. And number three, love is committing to pray for each other. I think what this chapter shows us is that love sometimes calls us to do things that we find uncomfortable. It requires us sometimes to hear things that we find hard. And so that's the reason I've called this talk Tough Love. Of course, Paul is writing as someone who is in leadership in the church, and so the sort of love that he is modeling for us here is something that we should expect to see in our church leaders I think this is true. One way that we will know that those responsible for this church really love us is if they love us like this. They're willing to talk straight with us about sin. They're willing to call us to examine ourselves. And they're willing to commit to us in prayer. But that doesn't mean that only those in senior leadership, uh, Or This passage only applies to those in senior leadership. Everyone else can just sort of switch off for the next 20 minutes. This really applies to everyone. Paul is writing as a leader of the church, but really he's a model for all of us as Christians. And so what we're going to look at is really relevant for each one of us. Now, before we start, just one caveat, just to get this out of the way. Math has told me nothing about this church. So if I say something, oh, that's a bit sharp. He's pointing out something in this church. I'm not. Math has told me nothing I know nothing about you, um, but we trust that God will speak to us as we look together at his word. Now, before we turn to chapter 13 itself, I think it's helpful just to have a little bit of that background in our minds before we look at the passage. It's often said that, you know, reading through these letters in the New Testament, I don't know if you've found this, it's a little bit like listening to one end of a telephone conversation. You've got one end here And you're having to piece together what the person at the other end of the line is saying. As you go through 2 Corinthians, I think you feel more keenly perhaps than anywhere else. There is this great backstory. There is some issue going on in the background that you have to really try and piece together if you're trying to really get to grips with what the letter is all about. So what is going on in this letter? Well, Paul planted this church in Corinth. And it's the church that is now in something of a mess. His relationship with it has become strained. It's a relatively young church. It's come out of a pagan background. And people have brought all sorts of baggage with them. And they still have that baggage and are struggling with it. I think we could say in many ways is a church that is being shaped by the world and not by Jesus. At least there are some people in the church who are being shaped by the world and not by Jesus and in particular there is an ongoing problem with sexual immorality now to make matters worse if that wasn't bad enough as we read on into chapter 10 we discover that there are some false teachers under who under whose teaching this church has come they are preaching a different gospel a different Jesus a different spirit and some people perhaps in light of what they've heard from these false teachers are now taking against Paul If you have a look at chapter 10, don't do it now, I'll just read it to you, but chapter 10, verse 10, Paul reports what they're saying. He says that people are going around saying that his letters may be weighty and forceful, but actually he in person is unimpressive. And his oratory is not a patch on that of these false teachers. They're far more slick than Paul is. He was being rejected by a church that he had planted. And that rejection must have been very painful. If you think about what he could have done, he could have just given up on them, couldn't he? He could have just walked away and said, you're a basket case. I'm not going to waste my time and effort on you anymore. I'm going to go and invest my time in a different church, plant something new. But in his enormous love for them, he doesn't. He persists with them. And as I've read through this book again this week, one of the things that I find most striking as you go through is Paul's heart. Paul's heart is just laid bare on every page. You see his deep, deep love for this wayward church, even for those who've rejected him. Chapter 2, verse 4, he speaks of the depth of his love. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says that you as a church are written on my heart. Chapter 6, verse 11, he says that his heart is wide open to them. And he wishes that their heart was wide open to him. Chapter 7, verse 3, he says again how they are in his heart. And then chapter 11, verse 29, he speaks about his really profound empathy, his sort of passionate commitment to them. He says, look, when you are weak, I am weak. When you fall into sin, my heart burns inside And then he crowns it all, chapter 12, verse 14. He said he would gladly spend and be spent for their sake. He'll give everything for the sake of this church. This letter just radiates Paul's love. His love and concern, even for this wayward church, for a church that has tried to reject him. And it's that love, really, that lies behind this chapter. And it's vital that we see that this is what is the foundation of everything that Paul says. Otherwise, we will misread what Paul is saying and his heart towards them. So let's turn to that chapter together. And let's begin with love is talking straight about sin. Verses 1 to 4. Paul says that he is going to come to them, this is going to be his third visit, and when he comes, he says he is prepared to do some straight talking with them about the sin going on in the church. Verse 2, on my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Now, he has two groups of people in mind as he writes. He writes about those who have sinned earlier, and he speaks of any of the others, so on the one hand, he is speaking about those who have been persisting in sexual immorality. As you read through the letter, back in chapter 2, you'll read about the painful visit that he had to go on to the church. And then how he wrote a letter in great distress, full of anguish of heart. It's likely that what he was dealing with was this problem of sin in the church. And now if you go back into chapter 12 and verse 21... He says this, that he is afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Despite the painful visit, despite that heartfelt letter, the problem of sin persists in the heart of the church but he's also concerned that there will be other less obvious what we might think of as less serious sins I think are no less serious sins and he refers to them in the previous chapter in verse 20 he says I'm afraid that when I come to you I may not find you as I want you to be I fear that there may be discord jealousy fits of rage selfish ambition slander gossip arrogance and disorder now, Paul's language, as you read through this chapter, is unmistakably strong. You yeah, he is going to come and he says that he will not spare. He says that he will be harsh if he has to be in verse 10. And if we didn't have the rest of the letter, I think it'd be easy to get the wrong impression of what is motivating Paul. But what we've seen is that this is a man whose heart is for them. He is willing to lay down his life for them and it's because he loves them so much that he wants to talk to them about sin. You see, Paul knows just how serious sin is. He knows that if it is left unchecked, it will be like a cancer in the church. It will destroy not only the church, but it will also destroy individual believers. It is so awful so devastating, so destructive, so dishonoring to God that he must tackle it head on. If you think it would be easier, wouldn't it, for Paul just to sidestep this issue or just to walk away from this church, but he doesn't. He loves them and so he's going to persist with them. He won't avoid the issue of sin. He's like a parent. Imagine a, a parent with a child who's playing near an electrical socket. You know What are they going to do? A loving parent will do all they can to stop the child sticking their fingers into the socket. What sort of parent would he be if you just sat there and watched your child do it? That's Paul's heart to this church. He loves them. He wants them to keep away from danger. He wants to see them know joy in Christ again. He tells us in verse 9 what his great prayer for is for their restoration. And back in chapter 1, verse 24, he says that in everything he is always working for their joy. And so what Paul is doing here is he is writing that they might be restored so they might know joy in Christ again. Because if one thing is certain, it is this, that sin will rob us of our joy in Christ. If we are harboring secret sin, it will steal that joy. He wants to see them restored. He wants them to know that joy again. Well, what does all this mean for us? I think it means this, that if we truly love each other, if we really seek each other's joy, then we will also be willing to talk straight to each other about sin no matter how hard that is to do, no matter how hard that is to hear. Now that is, I think, a particular responsibility of anyone in church leadership, but I think also that we're all called to do this to a greater or lesser extent. Galatians 6 verse 1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Or Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In fact, John Wesley, back in the day, wrote a whole sermon called The Duty of Reproving One's Neighbour. Listen to what he says. Love indeed requires us to warn our neighbour not only of sin, but likewise of any error which, if it were persisted in, would naturally lead to sin. If we do not hate him in our heart, if we love our neighbor as ourselves, this will be our constant endeavor, to warn him of every evil and of every mistake which tends to evil. very, very conscious as as we talk about this issue, as we talk about speaking to one another about sin, we have to be very, very careful how we do that. If the idea of speaking to someone about their sin is something that you relish, then can I suggest you are not the person to be doing it. It's something that's got to be done in love, in humility, in grace, in meekness, in gentleness, in prayerfulness. Mustn't be done in anger or impatience. Mustn't be done rashly or impulsively. Our motive must never be to put them right. Show them that, or sorry, put them, or to, sorry put them in the right, show them that I was right all along. Our motive, like Paul's, must be to see this person restored, that they might know joy in Christ again. I don't know how the thought of speaking to someone about their sin makes you feel. If I'm honest, it terrifies me. I am a born people pleaser. The last thing I want is that sort of sense of confrontation, of having to raise that awkward subject with someone. Maybe that you're the opposite. Maybe that you would relish the opportunity to lay the law down with someone, show people why you're right, they're wrong. But ultimately, both of those attitudes are driven by self-love and not love for the other person. If we love someone, we won't dodge the issue. We will address their sin, that they might be restored and know joy again. So how is it that we develop the heart that we need to be able to do this? How can we have a heart of what we might think of as tender courage? That's what Paul's heart is. It is tender, but it is courageous. Well, someone once said that the reason why Paul had this heart It's because he had immersed his heart in the heart of another. As you read through this letter, it's clear that Paul's heart is cross-shaped. It has been shaped by Jesus. He puts other people's needs before his own, just as Christ laid down his life for us, so he is willing to spend and be spent for the sake of this church. His great desire is not his own worth, what people think of him, to be put on a pedestal by this church, his one great desire is to see this church set free, to see them restored, to see them brought back to joy once again. So number one, love is being willing to challenge one another over our sin. Secondly, love is calling for honest self-examination we go on to verses five and six i cannot think of a greater tragedy than for someone to go to church the whole of their lives to think that they have been a christian that everything is fine only to find out when it is too late that the whole thing has been a sham Jesus himself warns us of that possibility in Matthew 7. He says that people will even prophesy and drive out demons and perform miracles in his name. And yet when they meet with him, he will have no choice but to say, I never knew you. Now Paul is also keenly aware of that danger. And he does not want to leave it unaddressed. He knows it is too real a danger not to speak to this church about it. And so having addressed them on the issue of sin, he now, as it were, goes one step further. He says, look, examine yourselves. Are you really in the faith? Are you sure you are a believer? Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves and again, we need to be absolutely clear as to what it is that is motivating Paul. He's not trying to crush people. He's not trying to expose people or humiliate them. He is driven by love. He doesn't want anyone in this church to be under any illusion as to whether or not they really are or really belong to Christ. And so he says to all of the church, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And actually, even for those who are clearly in the faith, examining themselves is only going to leave them stronger once they've done it. More convinced, yes, I am. And for those who aren't, it will give them the opportunity to turn to Jesus before it's too late. And so he gives them this test. And it seems there are two elements to the test that he gives them. Belief and behavior. Firstly, belief. There's a doctrinal element. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. When Paul speaks of the faith, what he means is the gospel, the Christian faith, the doctrinal content of what we believe. So the first part of Paul's test is this. Are you believing what Jesus taught? Are you believing what you are reading in scripture? Or have you come to believe something else? Have you come to believe a watered-down version of the gospel? Now, that was really pertinent in this church because false teachers had come in. You could read about them in chapter 10. And Paul says he fears that some people in this church are even capable of believing these false teachers, believing a different gospel with a different spirit and a different Jesus. And that problem is equally pertinent today. There are churches that no longer teach the biblical gospel. There are some who teach that God loves everyone, therefore everyone will be saved. That is not the gospel. The Bible is very clear. It is those who trust in Jesus who are saved. There are other people who believe that, well, as long as I do enough good things, then I'll be saved. It's not the gospel. None of us can do anything that's going to earn our approval before God. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of the New Testament is basically this, that no one is good enough for god we may do some good things but ultimately we all stand guilty before god we are not deserving of reward we are deserving of punishment but such is his love that he sent his only son to take our place to bear our punishment on the cross so that we can be forgiven and set free so that we can be accepted by god i think you were looking at that verse last week in two Corinthians chapter five, he uh, who was without sin was made sin for us, that we sin as though we are, might be made the righteousness of God, and so accepted by God. So Paul says, "Look, examine yourselves. Is this what you believe? Are you believing the biblical gospel?" And then the second part is behavior. True belief always leads to a transformation of life. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. As we put our faith in Jesus as he comes then to live within our hearts so our lives are transformed little by little we are made more like him as we've seen there are some in this church in Corinth who are persisting in their sin despite him writing to them despite his painful visit to them there are some who simply won't turn away from what he has told them is wrong It's a worrying sign, as far as Paul is concerned, that these people may not know Christ. True faith will always lead to sin being driven out of our hearts. When Jesus comes in, sin goes out. It's like oil and water. The two simply do not mix as Jesus comes in. So sin is pushed out. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. None of us are perfect. We all sin every day but there should be some fruit that is appearing in our lives. It may not be huge fruit, but if there's fruit, it's a great sign that we belong to Jesus, that he is at work in our hearts. And as we go through the Christian life, so we produce more and more fruit as we are transformed more and more into his image. Well, what does all this mean for us, verses 5 and 6? I think it means, firstly, that Paul would encourage us, if he was here, to examine ourselves are we in the faith? Do we know what it means for Christ to live inside? Do we know this uh, repentance, this uh, turning away from sin, this gradual growth into, uh, into Christ likeness? But secondly, there's also a time, I think, for calling each other to self-examination. Again, it's a particular role of the leadership of the church, but there may be occasions, perhaps in the context of a friendship, when you just have that nagging doubt about their experience of Jesus, and it's right in that context, very gently, very tenderly, very lovingly, just to probe about their experience, that you might bring them to this point where they examine themselves, that if they don't know Jesus, you give them the opportunity to come to know him, not to humiliate or upset them, but they might know joy. So love is being prepared to call one another to examine our hearts and then finally love is committing to one another in prayer verses seven to nine paul i think is deeply concerned about the state of this church he's concerned there are some pockets in it uh, that are really troubling him There may be some people here who don't yet know Christ. There are some, certainly, who are unrepentant. There are some who are going after false teachers. He hasn't shied away from speaking to them honestly about their sin. He hasn't shied away from telling them to examine their hearts. But he knows this, that no matter how stern he is, no matter how much effort they put in, nothing is going to change unless God is at work in their hearts. And so thirdly, he is absolutely committed to praying for them because he loves them. Verse 7, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. And verse 9, our prayer is that you may be fully restored. That is not lip service from Paul. I think it so often is for us, isn't it? We say, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then we sort of never quite get around to doing it. I think that when Paul says he's going to pray, he's going to pray. Why? Because as we saw back at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 11, he knows the power of prayer. He's spoken about his deliverance. He's called this church to be praying for him because he knows that through their prayers he will be delivered again. He knows that if this church is to be set right, if people are to be set free, if they're to know joy in Jesus again, it will happen as people pray for them. For this church to be turned around, for a new spirit of repentance, of earnestness, of seeking Jesus to come, he knows that people must be at prayer. It is only God who can do that in people's hearts. And because he loves them, he commits To pray for them. So, can I urge and encourage you all to be praying for one another? Make the church prayer meeting an absolute priority. I don't know how often you pray as a church every month, uh, every week. Make it a priority. Pray for each other. Pray for the leadership. Pray for the preaching. Pray for the worship. Pray for our home groups. And as we pray, I think our great temptation is we pray for superficial needs. But let's pray for the really deep things. Let's pray that Christ will be formed in every heart in this church and in all churches across North Cardiff. And let's pray that where there are those who have fallen into sin, they might be restored and might know joy in Christ once again. So as we come into land, what have we seen? I think we see this, that 1 Corinthians 13 is perhaps one uh, aspect of, of God's love this is another aspect of God's love this is the tough love side of the equation sometimes loving each other means doing the hard thing and it means saying things that may be hard for people to hear it means challenging sin when appropriate it means calling each other to examine our hearts it means committing to really pray for one another This chapter, I think, is just as much about love as its counterpart in 1 Corinthians. This is love in action. And the more I thought about this passage and what it reveals about love, the more I realized, actually, what we see here in Paul is exactly what we see in Jesus, isn't it? He talks straight to us about sin. He talks straighter about sin than anyone else. Jesus calls us to examine our hearts. And Jesus was and is committed to praying for us. So as we draw to a close, let's love one another. Let's love one another with this deep and earnest love. Love that doesn't shy away from doing the hard thing. Love that is committed to each other. Love that wants above everything else to see Christ formed. In every heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that this love that Paul has for the church, which is mind blowing in itself, is really just a pale reflection of the love that you have for us. Lord, we thank you that your love for us is so great that you sent your only Son to die for us at the cross. Lord, we just praise you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your patience with us. We thank you for your grace and patience with this church. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us a fresh spirit, that we would be serious about sin, that we would be the holy people that you are calling us to be. Give us that tender courage that Paul has, that Christ has, that we would be honest with each other. And Father, we pray that you would give us a heart that is totally committed to each other,